This is Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. I'm Jesse Felder. Object to the test! Super Investors is brought to you by the Felder Report. When I'm not interviewing one of the most interesting minds in the world of finance, I spend an inordinate amount of time reading through articles and research or studying charts and statistics. And I put together some of the highlights in a free weekly email newsletter. If you're interested in subscribing, just go to thefelderreport.com and click join now right there on the homepage and you'll be good to go. For over 35 years now, Fred Hickey has consistently performed in-depth research into a wide variety of individual stocks and what drives them over the full market cycle. What's more, during that entire span, he's distilled his findings into concise and actionable research for subscribers to his newsletter, The High Tech Strategist. In the process, he's earned a reputation among loyal readers for being both a beacon of true value at times of market opportunity and a voice of reason during periods of overzealous speculation. In this conversation, Fred discusses the recent mania in the markets, how it compares to similar episodes of the past, and what those have to teach us about how the current decline in stock prices might unfold in the months ahead. So please enjoy my conversation with Fred Hickey. I wonder why fund managers can't beat the S&P 500. Because they're sheep. And sheep get slaughtered. Fred, welcome back to the show. My pleasure. Always glad to be here. Yeah, well, I, I was trying to get you a week or two ago just because of these topics I, I want to ask you about are so relevant. But, um, uh, you know, to, to dive right into it, you founded your newsletter, The High Tech Strategist, 35 years ago, I think, way back yes. in 1987. Yes. Correct. Correct. <laughs> so you've seen, you've seen all kinds of speculative episodes in the markets. How does the recent one compare to what you've seen firsthand? Right. Uh, well, <clears throat> this is the greatest bubble I've ever seen. And uh, most of the numbers will bear that out. So, you know, you were looking at uh, the top uh, market cap to GDP over 300%. Well, what did I see in 2000, which was which was, I thought, going to be the greatest bubble that I would ever see in my lifetime. Turns out it wasn't. Uh, it was this one. Uh, but that was only 190% of GDP at the top. So you're looking at 50% bigger plus than on that number. On, on a price-to-sales basis, we went to 3.2 times. It had only been 2.5 times in 2000, so again, 30% bigger. Um, the only numbers, and we can get into this later, the only numbers that don't show as great uh, are the P.E. ratios and the uh, Schiller cyclical P.E. ratio went to 40 at the top here. It was 44 in 2000. And that's because the I, I claim the numbers are phony. They, they're, they're, we'll get into that, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, the, the, everybody's using non-GAAP and, instead of GAAP. And, um, uh, but so you're looking at the biggest market um the biggest market bubble ever. And, and of course, it makes sense if you think about what the Fed has done. You know, they increased their, from 2009, they increased their balance sheet by 10x. Uh, just, just you know, trillions of dollars of money printed, printing. Uh, just in the last couple of years, uh, they reacted every time. Every, every QE that they've done has been bigger than the next. And the last one was bigger than all, all the other three combined. Uh, and you ended up with 40% growth in money supply uh, over a two-year period. Just insane kind of things. And that has led to insane uh, market cap levels. Well, I'm glad you brought up the, the, the Buffett yardstick market cap to GDP and the price to sales ratio. Because 
people, I think, who use price to earnings ratios don't necessarily appreciate that uh, profit margins are at record highs. And right. so for the PE to have any validity assumes profit margins are going to stay at record highs indefinitely, right? Because if margins mean revert, Right. right. The, the E goes down and the, the PE, you know, goes way up. Yeah, and they have, obviously, they have no, they're paying no interest payments. So corporations pay nothing. That's not going to stay. That's already right. changed. Yeah. We're already hearing companies talking about how higher interest expense. I heard this from, from Verizon's conference call. They talked about their interest expense going up a lot, affecting their earnings. They lowered earnings expectations. And one of the items was interest. That's just one item. Tax Taxes have been low. Uh, also, everything that could go right for corporations in the margin line has gone right, but now they're all reversing. Yeah. Well, where do you think we've seen some of the greatest mispricings in the market this time? Well, you know, you always see the crazy stuff, just like I saw in the dot-com world. And, and um, uh, you know, the, the, the worst of it was uh, in the most speculative stuff, um, you saw – you saw, uh, we've already, you know, I say the bear market began really in February, mid-February of, of last year. Um, you know, we have we had a thousand, we had a thousand unicorns, for example, a thousand unicorns. That means over a trillion, over a billion dollars a piece. Yeah. Um, just, just kind of staggering kinds of things. So uh, we have ten thousand cryptos. We had Arc, which is now down seventy, almost to thirty. Uh, it's lost almost 75% of its value uh, because all of the stuff that, that she was buying were uh, supposedly disrupted companies that could, they could she could pay any valuation for. So in the, in the cloud cloud names, uh, you know, uh, Snow, uh, Snowflake went to 125 times sales. Yeah. Uh, you know, NVIDIA, NVIDIA was 100 times earnings and um, 30 times sales. Now it's been cut in half. It's lost four investors have lost four hundred billion dollars in Nvidia, and it's still fifty times earnings and <clears throat> and and you know sixteen times sales uh, for a semiconductor company that I've been following for thirty years. And I watched Nvidia while I was in puts in, in Nvidia in both two thousand and two thousand and eight, and it dropped ninety percent in two thousand. It dropped eighty five percent in two thousand and nine. They're everywhere. The valuations, yeah. the crazy valuations, were everywhere. I mean, the total U.S. market was was equivalent to the next eleven combined in value market valuation. It's just the staggering numbers. Yeah. So everywhere, but obviously the cryptos, the NFTs, where I've seen NFT activity drop ninety six percent since you know very recently. Uh, uh, the meme stocks, the Chinese internet stocks, many of these have, have already started collapsing, as typically happens. Uh, we saw the same thing in two thousand where the dot-coms fell apart in March of 2000 and the S&P held up. It wasn't until uh, September that when Intel blew, uh, they were $75 stock. And I'll point out that Intel was the second largest market cap in the world at the time. Intel, it was, it was supposedly invincible, like many of the tech stocks I think are today, or, or they did. Um, it has never returned to that level. Uh, same thing with Cisco. Cisco, they dropped 80 plus, each one of them dropped 80 something percent. Two of the top 10 companies in the world valuations were tech stocks called EMC and Sun. And people were hiding in them after the dot-coms had blown up. They dropped 96% each, both of them. So we have these same kind of valuations, only worse. And they're everywhere. You know, like I said, all these cloud names, just insanity.
yeah. when you're paying these kind of things for, for time sales. Well, yeah, and I'm glad you bring up that metric specifically because I go back to, you know, the I think it was 2002 or something at Bloomberg interviewed Scott McNeely after Sun Microsystems <laughs> stock price had crashed. Right. And he was like, you know, was, what were people thinking paying 10 right. times sales for my right. stock at the right. top, right? We're seeing right. 30, 40, 50, 100 times sales. It's, it's so much, you know, greater. Yeah, he knew. He knew, he knew, and a lot of the insiders know today too. When they've been dumping yeah. shares, yeah. I mean that, and I, I love that you bring that up too because in two thousand, I think uh, if I remember correctly, Andy Grove retired and sold uh, mm-hmm. you know the majority of his Intel stock, and that should have been a pretty clear signal to investors at the time that hey, this guy who's you know responsible for for running this owner operated wonderful American you know success story. Is now cashing out, and you see, we've seen that at uh, Alphabet with Sergey. Microsoft and CEO sold half his. Microsoft CEO sold half of his half of his stock. Yeah, yeah. So it's it, it's astounding to me that investors aren't aren't really paying attention to this stuff. I, I want to talk specifically because I, I love in your not your latest report, but a month ago you wrote about mm-hmm. the software stocks and mm-hmm. the very loose concept of earnings <laughs> that right. people are talking about. What, what's going on with these things? Well, um, back in the day when I first started, you know, investing in the 1970s, late 70s, early 80s, uh, my first years, 1979 was really my first year. I was, I was a major tech investor. For I was buying 10 shares of Wang Labs and Prime Computer or whatever it was. Yeah. That's when I was. And, they, and they, of course, they went up tremendous amounts, of, um, you know, quadrupled and tripled and everything. It was very exciting. Um, but back then, everybody, everybody, and, and for the next 20 years, pretty much, everyone used Gap numbers. There wasn't generally accepted accounting principles. There wasn't any doubt about that. Everyone used it. Uh, and and then when the dot, well, when the, the the tech bubble occurred in the 1990s, we saw a great number of those tech companies start using non-gap numbers. And non-gap, um, well, a lot of these companies are throwing everything out, <laughs> almost every cost possible that they can think of. But the primary things that they drop are stock-based compensation, um, and I'll give you an example. So I, I had put in some numbers uh, in the newsletter about, you know, uh, executives getting paid two, three times what, uh, you know, their salaries in stock. Um, and, and, and this is, these are numbers in the wall street journal where they were saying that, uh, you know, the vast majority of engineer, mid, mid-level engineer, the, the compensation is, is in, is in stock right now. Well, if you pay in stock you and you, is this, and you exclude stock-based compensation from your P&L to get to a non-GAAP number, then you're inflating your earnings. Uh, they're also doing it by uh, stripping out uh, amortization of uh, intangibles. Now, and, you know, I'll give you an example, uh, Salesforce, right? Salesforce is one of the largest cloud companies, one of the original ones. It's been around for 23 years, never makes any money. In the last quarter, Salesforce report well money in a gap basis it made money it showed it showed that it made eighty four cents per share uh, on a non gap basis it had eight hundred and forty three million dollars worth of profit net income but when um, but when if you added back the stock based compensation that they were giving out to everyone freely uh, that was seven hundred and sixty three million dollars and then there was another $509 million for acquisitions, well, intangibles that they didn't, they didn't, uh, they stripped out as well. Now you're supposed to write off intangible assets on a gap basis because what, what is, what is, what is Salesforce? What is Salesforce? Well, it's a, it's kind of a roll up. It's done 
It's done 65 acquisitions in the last 23 years. The last one was Slack at $27 billion. Uh, its growth is coming not from or it's organically. It's coming from acquisitions. Well, first thing they do is they, they value the company as low as they possibly can so they can put a lot of, lot of what the, they paid into goodwill. Goodwill never gets reduced. And then the rest of it is has to be amortized over time. That's intangibles. Well, they're stripping that out of non-GAAP. So they're paying for companies and then not taking any of the costs for the software that was developed by those companies. So they get the benefit of the revenues and the earnings, but they don't account for it. So when you stripped all that out, Salesforce is 84 cents, which was a big beat. It went up. It was 10 cent beat. Uh, 74 cent was the estimate. Ended up being a loss. Okay, a loss. And yet you have you have Salesforce selling it. I mean, uh, selling it still at. Uh, you know, a hundred and something times earnings and, yeah. and a huge PE and, and, and everything else. And, and it's a couple hundred billion dollar market cap. It's no small company. This is a very large company. And it's that way with so many of them. Workday had 70, a 78 cent earnings they showed. Uh, another big beat. And these stocks went up on these beats. Uh, the real gap number when you, when you, when you put back in the stock based compensation and, and, and intangibles, well, that turned out to be a massive loss of $100 million. That was up, the loss was up 38% year over year. And all they do is talk about in the conference calls, the analysts, the managements, is how great the numbers were on a non-GAAP basis. They don't talk about what the GAAP numbers are. The press never talks about what the GAAP numbers are. So it's a completely different world than when I started, when everyone used GAAP. There's very few companies now... Uh, that are using, that use GAP. I think Microsoft's one of the few that still does. Uh, I gave an example of Intel. Um, you know, they've been around forever uh, and the largest semiconductor company in the US. And they only just last quarter, well, last quarter started using non-GAP numbers uh, to be in line with their peers, they said. Right. Because everybody else in the semiconductor world is doing this too. And of course, it's going to make their numbers look better. So that's why the P-E ratios are so distorted, I think. The E is no good. If you used a gap number, then we'd have a real, we'd have a real comparison. And I suspect the gap, the gap P-E would be ridiculously higher than, uh, than, it, than, it, than it would be. Uh, ServiceNow is another one. Now, ServiceNow makes money, they, but they reported $1.46. If you put the stock-based compensation back and the intangibles back in to get a gap number, that, that drops 90%. 90%. So instead of the 50 PE they have on, on a non-GAAP number, they have a really a 500 PE on, 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 a, on a GAAP number. It, you know, it's so, so you have all these 30 and 40 times sales companies. They really, they, some of them show earnings. A lot of them on a GAAP basis, almost all of them show a loss. Uh, many of them show losses and then bigger losses if you, if you use GAAP numbers. So, it's kind of a, I call it a, a con game, really, you know, that, that all of these. And of course, what's been happening is, is they issue all these shares. The stocks have been going up, you know, maniacally over these years and people are getting rich. I, you know, when I put out these numbers in my newsletter, I got a subscriber. I had a few, quite a few comments, but one of them said, your numbers are right on t- target. He said, I, my son and his friend, his friend had gotten a $700,000 signing bonus, all in equity. And then he was going to get paid $300,000 a year, and most of that was going to be in equity. Yeah. None of that was going to be shown on the bottom line, the P&L. 
And he said, well, I don't know why I wasted my whole career working in whatever he was doing when I could have been an instant millionaire if I was one of these guys. It's it's that they're just giving money away and not showing it on the PL. It's outrageous. Yeah. Outrageous. Well, so I, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, that's just, uh, you know, I could go on. I think yeah, no, just, I'm sorry. These companies. And, and I want you to go on because it is it is fascinating. And I think it's one of the, the misperceptions right now that's driven the bubble in, in a lot of these stocks. But you make the point in a recent letter that if companies were forced to buy back the shares uh, that are you know being issued to employees in the form of stock, stock options, it would be a lot more obvious what the true cost Right. Is um, a lot of them don't like Salesforce. They don't. They don't do buybacks. They just the, the 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 share count just keeps growing and growing and growing. And see, that's a cost to shareholders. That's a cost to shareholders. Yeah. I mean, now the really think- bad thing that we saw in two thousand was that they were giving a lot of stock options out, not not accounting for them. And then when the stock market collapsed, when the Nasdaq went down eighty four percent in two thousand, then they re they they. Uh, uh, they revised down this, the, uh, the strike prices so that the employees would still be okay, but of course the shareholders lost all, all lost lost out. Uh, you know they're the ones that get holding the bag uh, if they under, if they don't understand what's what's happening here. So yeah, it's terrible, absolutely terrible. I think. Well, I, I like to think of it. Um, you know, it, maybe it's one of the most important things I've learned from studying Warren Buffett is that you know when you think of these things as a, an acquirer of the entire business. And you realize, okay, if I buy this whole company, take it private, and then I have to give away whatever 5% of the equity every year to the employees just to keep them happy, right? I mean, that is a cost, a major cost to me, uh, diluting my ownership of the company. And, and But for some reason, because there aren't those buybacks in the case of Salesforce and things, investors are comfortable with uh, just assuming that those aren't, those aren't expenses. Um, no. And they show, you know, Salesforce, for example, they show all this cash that they generate, but they really aren't <laughs> because they, right. uh, and, and, and you think about it, 23, it's just a huge company, $200 billion. It's been around for 23 years. Software companies generally have high margins. They don't have a lot of costs. I mean, their costs, this is what they're writing up. Their costs are the labor to produce the software or market it. And, and they, they give options to all those people or the cost to acquire. And they write that off. As well, they don't include either one of those or a lot of the co- cost of those in their numbers. And yet, again, here you know their uh, their uh, share count goes up and up and up. There are no dividends. Supposedly, they've generated all this all this money over all these years, and there are never any dividends. And the cash, there's no big cash position either. Why? Because they keep acquiring companies in order to keep their growth rate up, <laughs> and then they don't account for the costs. Yeah. Well, it's. I, I think I've seen um, somebody argue to kind of dig into the accounting a little bit. You know, the uh, the stock based compensation uh, gets added back in you know cash flow from operations. But I've seen some people argue that it should no, be. No, they, they, they adjust that too. Yeah, it should be. It should be maybe under cash flow from financing because right. it really is more of a, a financing type type. You right. know, so I mean, somebody's yeah. coming to go to extremes. They strip out all sorts of things um, yeah. well, beyond that. I mean, you know, a long list of ten items that they strip. Well, out. you get all the way to something like WeWork, which was doing you know community based <laughs> community adjusted right. EBITDA. Which, you know, it's like what the it, heck is that? Totally out of control. But that's what happens in manias. Yeah. Things get out of control. And I, I feel bad for the regulators. I mean, you have 10,000 cryptos that aren't worth anything. Probably At least 9,980 of, of them will never be worth anything. Maybe you can make the case that one of them will or two, if it's a store of value, which it doesn't look to be right now. It just goes up and down with the, the NASDAQ. But 
they have all they're all scams. They have, they're all these NFTs and everything. How do you how, how, how they can't barely they, so never mind you know dealing with all of that stuff. Uh, they have this as well. This is going to be a, not a high priority for them. Right. Yeah. The SEC seems to like they're going to be very busy in the next few yeah, years. That's for sure. That's for sure. Uh, yeah. You know. Um, I, I want to ask you too about you know you also make the point um, and I think you mentioned a minute ago that a lot of these companies have become roll-ups essentially where they become serial acquirers uh, and that's become an even more important component of their business than whatever their underlying, you know, software business is. Um, you know, that's, that's something that we see, you know, over time through cycles too. And it, it doesn't right. end to work out very well. No, no. Uh, you know, uh, Salesforce is probably the most egregious in, in the software area. Broadcom is doing that in the semiconductor world and they've been buying legacy software companies and rolling those up into their semiconductor business too. I don't even know how you justify that, but they've been doing it. And if you write off all the costs, then obviously you're going to get a lot of extra earnings when you, uh, as you go forward with that and, and, and you get growth and then they pay big multiples for these kinds of things. So uh, yeah, uh, the thing, you know, one of the things that happens though is, is, and it was in that wall street journal story is that when you're paying all these people in stock-based compensation, and they get the stock and they don't revalue the option. If it's, if it's stock-based compensation then it's, and not option so much, then uh, the stock collapses. Then they're not getting paid anything. Uh, right. and, so, and so now we're seeing some of these companies, some of the employees demanding cash payments instead of stock, the stock. And when that happens, the earnings get hit. So we're right. likely to see declines in earnings here going forward. You can't back out that uh, cash-based compensation. No, that, right. you that you can't. And so, <laughs> and so you're going to see that. You're going to see some of that too. These earnings aren't real, the ones that they're they're showing on a non-GAAP basis. Well, that, that was really my next question for you. Is It, it seems like um, that a lot of these things, the, the willingness to accept uh, alternative earnings metrics and things on the part of investors – um, and then also the companies being able to use inflated in their inflated equity valuations to buy revenue growth. Uh, mm-hmm. They're all it all seems entirely dependent upon, uh, you know, bull market, um, yeah. you know, keeping the stock prices up. Uh, how I guess, you know, talk me through a little bit how and you did with the stock based compensation, but how this virtuous cycle for these companies could potentially become a vicious one in a bear market. All of their levers are gone uh, when that happens. Um, so. Um, you're, you're right. You, you, you're, uh, well, another thing they do is they buy back lots of shares too. Some of these companies, not so much these cloud names, but but a lot of the a lot of the companies like Apple and Microsoft buy back a lot of shares. Well, it, let's take Apple for example. They buy back the same amount of money every year, uh, but not the same shares because it's gone up so much. So, yeah. <laughs> so, so, so they have they have spent huge amounts of money propping up earnings here. Um, I think it'll be the greatest amount of wealth destruction ever over time. Yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll find that out. Um, you know, Apple, uh, that one's just crazy. It's selling at 26 times earnings and there's no earnings right now. I mean, they're looking, the analysts are looking for a 10% decline. So that PE ratio is going higher now. Yeah. It, everything starts to reverse on people. Now, Apple's not a serial acquirer, but many of these others are. Um so the earnings, the PEs are going to go up. They're, they they usually do, um, they do always do buybacks at the top. So right. when 
prices are dropping. They never, they didn't buy anything back in 2002. They didn't buy anything back in 2009. It's always at the top. So you lose the lever of the stock buyback. You lose the, you lose some of the non-GAAP adjustments. You lose some of that. You lose, uh, you know, the, no one's really doing it. All the, all merger and acquisition activity occurs at tops too. So they're not, they don't do that as well. They don't buy low. They always buy high. Uh, they buy when they're going to get rewarded for the sales growth that they're given. And that's what's been, that's what's everybody's been doing is been chasing, you know, back in 2000, they chased it at high bulbs. Now they're chasing, you know, sales growth uh, and that kind of thing. Uh, so you don't do that either. So the, all the levers they were using to, uh, to push up the stocks start reversing. Yeah, I mean, it's a great point. When when they can't acquire anymore because it becomes too expensive because the equity's not inflated. I mean, right. the, the, but also, you know, what we saw, what I've seen so many times is, uh, you know, near the bottom, right? We start seeing the intangibles finally get written off because a lot of the acquisitions they made, you know, actually turned out that the, that software, you know, became well, obsolete. Really? The only time you write off good write off goodwill basically is when the the software they have not aren't selling anymore. So right. that's yeah. when they're forced to, they're forced to start taking write offs. And of course, that happens at the bottoms too, right? right? And yeah. then they just throw in the kitchen sink. Then then they have massive losses. And, right, right. Yeah. And then that maybe when they finally are writing off that those intangibles of goodwill, that's when you know you're you're getting close to a, a bottom. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, you know, I go. I, I I'm a historian, a market historian, especially for tech, and I, I go through some of these declines that occurred over time because every time people get enamored with tech, every bubble. This isn't anything new. So RCA, which was the internet wireless company of the day in the 19, you know, the 1920s, right? Uh, it was the greatest tech stock there was, probably one of the first ones. And it went down 98% in 1929 to 1932. It was so overvalued and it took forever for, you know, decades for it to ever get, that one did get back to its uh, old highs, but it took like 20 something years. Uh, in 1969-70, you had the 10 leading 10 leading stocks, IBM, uh, Sperry, those kinds of stocks, Polaroid, those dropped 80 plus percent. They, they, every time they go through, they do the same thing. They make the yeah. same mistakes over and over again. In 1973, 74, the bunch companies, you know, you probably don't remember those, but I do. It was, it was Burroughs, Univac, uh, NCR, Control Data, and Honeywell. Those dropped 85 to 95 percent. The minor bear market in, in 1990 that I was involved with was, you know, relatively smaller uh, bear market. The leading stocks at the time were Microsoft, Intel, Compaq, and Oracle. And those fell on average 50% in three months at the end. And that was the bottom in, in October 1990. That was the bottom of, of that market. And of course, we saw what happened in, in, in 2000 and again in 2009. So every time they make the same mistakes, they go... They go, they, whatever, you know, they're, you just, they, go, they just put imaginary numbers on top of imaginary numbers there. Uh, you know, they, they put out, they put out earnings estimates for 20 years from now. And that's what they base their PE ratios, all the crazy stuff. Yeah. And they do it, it, it every time. And this is what we've done. So you look at today's market and Apple's down 13%. Well, I'm sorry. It's not, the market's not going to be done when Apple is down 13%. I just told you some of the numbers here. Yeah. You know, it was it was forty three dollars in two thousand nineteen. Okay, now it's probably going to go back to that level, but it's one hundred and sixty dollars right now. Um, you know, like I said, Apple's earnings are declining. Um, we're, 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 when we talk these earnings, we're talking peak earnings. 
I talk about the, the in the smartphone area. Um, so for Apple, in Apple's case, um, so they're a leader of the U.S., they're not a leader worldwide, the leader of U.S. smartphones. They're the mar- largest market cap in the world. They had set, they were equi- equivalent to seven plus percent of the, all, all of the uh, S&P, which I've never, I don't think I've ever seen before one stock being that big. It is the market in many ways. And if Apple goes, it's going to affect these indices. Right now, now NASDAQ down bear market levels, 20 something percent, but the Dow is only down 10 and the S&P is only down 13. So uh, you got, you got, you have things like Apple. Um, it, benefited from a major upgrade cycle when they went from uh, they went to three uh, 5g just as they did when they went from three and a half inches to five inches screens each time they do that they get to peak numbers um, and then there's a fall off once the upgrade cycle has occurred well they're in a point in time where the upgrade cycle is turning down but their numbers from last year were basically the biggest numbers ever going to see and on top of that, you had COVID, which drove uh, work from home and uh, learning from home. And uh, so in both smartphones, iPads, um, tablets, uh, PCs, everything exploded. So uh, a year ago in first quarter, the, the uh, worldwide global shipments of, of, of smartphones were up 25% per year. Now it, it was single digits prior to that, almost nothing the year before, uh, and you went up, you soared to twenty five percent. You know what it is now? Minus nine in Q one, <laughs> and they're looking for minus twenty percent in Q two. Now, how does Apple? How do Apple numbers hold up? Now, their analysts are expecting a ten percent decline, but it's probably going to be worse. Apple didn't give guidance. They were one of the only companies that didn't give any guidance. They gave directional guidance, but they wouldn't give any numbers. They talked about Russia. They talked about foreign exchange, which is a big problem with the dollar going for all of these U.S. international, you know, companies that sell internationally like Apple does. They're all, that's troublesome for all of them. They talked about Europe um, being a problem for them. And Amazon mentioned Europe, Google mentioned Europe, Apple mentioned Europe, and that's obviously Europe's a basket case. So the European economy was pretty strong and now it's heading to be a basket case with energy costs spiking on them. Um, but you had this 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 uh, this COVID-driven uh, surge in all items. PC sales, the same thing. PC sales went up. They had gone for seven consecutive years of negative growth. It was the most saturated market you could have, mature market. It went up two percent in 2019 because of a Windows upgrade. Two percent. Well, uh, in 2020 went to up 13. 2021 up 15. Uh, first quarter, fourth quarter of 2020, up 26, and the and the industry started saying we're in a new era of of higher growth. <laughs> right. Well, you're not. It's it's what happened was was that you know you had you had one home PC, and all the kids were home and they had to learn how many kids you have. Well, you might have four. Well, you need four PCs now, right. uh, and so you had this one time surge that drove the whole industry. And remember now. Smartphones and PCs are the number one and number two consumers of semiconductors. So it drove the whole semiconductor market as well, demand. And now they're all going negative. The PC market was up one quarter ago in Q1 2021 was up 25% year over year. First quarter, down 9%. And and it's only going to get worse. So these numbers that we're looking at at Apple are peak numbers for a couple of reasons. One is they were in a booming globe, you know, 
economy here, particularly in the U.S., you, which is changing now. I say we're heading towards recession. Um, and so clearly you see now in China, I mean, Apple sales, 20% of their sales are in China. And not only do they have you know, uh, supply constraints, but they also have shutdowns. And, and so their Chinese sales are going to drop. The European sales are going to drop. Last quarter, their numbers were pretty good. Uh, in Apple's case, they were the only smartphone vendor to be up to show any growth at all in the quarter. Uh, every, all the others were down, negative. And but if you look at and no one talked about this in any of the conference calls, I didn't see it anywhere. But in Apple's case, the, all of the areas outside of the U.S. deteriorated badly. Uh, Europe half the growth rate half from nine percent to four and a half percent. Their Chinese business went from twenty one percent growth to three. Their rest of Asia went from 19 to minus seven. And it was only this growth in the U.S. up almost 20 percent versus 11, uh, 11 in the in the fourth quarter that drove them. Well, the U.S. isn't going to grow, continue to grow at 20 uh, percent. We're, we're, I just told you what smartphone sales are doing in Q1 and in and PCs are doing also in Q1. And it's only going to get worse. So. Everything is turning against these big cap techs. Uh, I, I mentioned that, you know, in Amazon and uh, Amazon and Google's case, they also mentioned European weakness as well. Uh, yeah. uh, it, it, it's all going to turn the other way. And yet you have peak. So you talked about peak growth margins. I'm talking about peak revenues on top of that. Right, right, which, is, which only exacerbates things. I, I'm glad you used the phrase new era because it reminds me of – the last time I heard that phrase was in 2000. And I right. think there's some parallels between, you know, the lead up to Y2K and the big demand surge we saw for computers and semiconductors and all that stuff in 1999 that, you know, pulled forward a bunch of demand and then left a vacuum of demand for a couple of years. That was really uh, one of the major catalysts for the bear market. You probably you weren't reading my stuff then probably because it's so young. But I was calling what was coming back back then nuclear winter. That yeah. was my phrase for it. That the, 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 the that the demand was going to fall off so sharply for these technology products that it would be nuclear winter. Well, explain. I think there are a lot of people that don't even real know know what Y two K was. I mean, well, it, it, okay, Y two K was, uh, <laughs> and and and, and, I, and and my last longs were all Y two K software companies in nineteen ninety eight. I think I sold the last of them. Uh, last of my tech uh, longs, and I didn't have any in 1999. That, of course, was a problem <laughs> because it kept going straight up at the time right. uh, until to, until until March of 2000. But Y2K was well year 2000, and year 2000, um, then because you went to four digits <laughs> in the yeah. computer code, you add an extra zero to everything. Um, so you had to add an extra digit, and everyone had to upgrade their software. Um, we were. I was used to work in industry, and we were working on that years earlier, uh, in advance. And everybody really was, but there was so much hype about uh, how uh, this transition was going to uh, cause a lot of well, a lot of spending for one thing, and then also it would they get really scared that that a lot of companies weren't ready for that, and that they were going to have computer chaos. That the computers wouldn't, the systems wouldn't work, payrolls weren't going to be paid, all of this. And Greenspan panicked and did the first cute. He was a very small amount relative to what they do today. It was a very small amount, uh, but it was very easy. And, and it was, was part of the reason why we had that last burst was 
because he was afraid of the economy collapsing because of Y2K. Now, what actually happened and what I thought would happen would be nothing happened, right? It was it was a worries about nothing because companies like I worked in, which was General Telephone Electronics, we had been working on that for a decade or more. So, yeah. <laughs> but everybody upgraded their PCs. And I mean, you know, yeah, if they, they did intended- that too, yeah. Yeah, and so they, if, they, well, if they had planned on upgrading in 2001 or two or whatever, they all did it in 99. And so there was that nuclear it, winter. It wasn't just that, though. The biggest areas of uh, overbuilding was because, because of the Internet. Right. right. And they were talking about, you know, the, the insane kind of growth levels. It was going to be doubling per day, every day or whatever. You know, it's crazy stuff that they put out. I was going to solve all the world's problems. The Internet was, uh, you know, peace and prosperity and you name it. And people put up way too much fiber optic capacity. I mean, a hundred times what they really needed. They put up too many servers. So the capacity was enormous. And that's why Cisco was doing as well as it did and why it never came back because the expectations built into that stock price were so high. Cisco has had excellent numbers from 2000 to 2022. The market value has come, the, the, the multiple has come down over that time frame. The growth rate came down too because it was such an overbuild that was not real. It was not sustainable. And that's, that's in, in, the, in, in the network equipment, particularly in fiber optics, servers, all of those things. Sun Microsystems was a server company. EMC was a, a storage company. Everybody overbuilt, assuming that the internet was going to grow at these uh, phenomenal levels. And it did grow at phenomenal levels, but just not to the, their imagination levels. And it's the same thing sort of today where we have, uh, we've had much overbuilding. You have, when you have a thousand, you know, when you have a thousand unicorns that, you know, with a, a billion dollar piece, these companies, almost all of them, none of them make any money. The, 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 now that those markets have sold off uh, or are in the process of selling off, the equity market, I mean, the IPO market is shut down uh, pretty much. It's not any, any kind of activity going on here. Last year, VCs put $330 billion into, uh, into companies. That was twice the, lo- the record the year before, which was enormous. Same thing with uh, private equity. The, so all of these companies were funded and many of them don't have business models that are going to work. We're seeing some of them, you know, right? We're seeing some of them implode. Some of the ones like Carvana and, and things like that. They're, they're starting to implode, but they all employ people. They all have computers. They have servers. They have all of this stuff. And these companies aren't going to survive. There's going to be a whole bunch of companies, just like the dot-coms, that went away. And when their business went away in 2000, then Sun, Cisco, EMC, all the, you know, all of the JDS Uniphases and all the companies in fiber optics, their, their numbers collapsed, absolutely total collapse. And that's, yeah. you're going to see the same kind of thing here because these companies aren't really real. They're, they're just, they were just based upon them, the, the ability to fund themselves and the, the easiest credit period ever. Yeah. We, we were talking about the software stocks um, and, and you bring up a great point because I guess how much of their business do you think is you know selling picks and shovels to the startup gold rush, right? I you mean, know, even even Amazon Web Services, a lot of that that business is um, is towards those kinds of companies as well. We'll never know exactly how much, but I know from history that yeah. this is how it works, right? This is how it works. Uh, I don't know the numbers; no one really does. Uh, but you can guess that uh, that uh, so much of their much of their uh, extra growth 
was due to due to all of this. And and there's also, you know, uh, another parallel that comes to mind is you mentioned the overbuilding of the Internet. I mean, you could argue, um, you know, this is not a popular thing to argue today, but that uh, crypto has been potentially massively overbuilt um, in the past couple of years. There are 10,000, over 10,000 cryptos. (laughs) They all have people behind them, too. I mean, some people, the little little crappy ones were one person. But, you know... There, there's a whole. There are whole industries that have developed here. There, yeah. there are big conferences in Miami and all sorts of stuff, right? That, that go on, and this all creates economic activity, right. which will go away. Uh, that's what happens in all of these uh, recessions that that occur um, when, when oftentimes when when stock markets implode too. Um, you know, and, and, and we didn't talk about it, but we're going to have a recession. Yeah. Uh, you know, we a hundred percent of the time when energy prices go up fifty percent in the last fifty years, seven times, there was a recession. A hundred percent. Let's start with that. Yeah. Then you have, uh, then you have the spike in interest rates that have already occurred. Uh, you know, you're talking about three percent rates. Uh, look at the mortgage market. Mortgage market's gone from two point five percent to five point three percent. It's doubled in a year. Well, the housing market's going down, and it usually leads to recessions. They're a leading indicator. Um, so all of this, everything, every, it's a perfect storm for, for a recession. You get all these people talking about, uh, talking about a soft landing. Powell talks about the uh, pretty good odds of a soft landing. Now, when they leave the Fed, like Dudley did, he says there's virtually no chance of a soft landing. <laughs> right. <what's> going on. <laughs> right. So we're going to have a recession here, and that's going to cause all kinds of declines in economic activity. First of all, you're going to blow up all these companies that didn't, they're going to go bankrupt, right? They're going to lose it or they'll cut back so far. They're already starting to do that. We're hearing it, that they're cutting back just to survive. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you're not going to be spending any money on any kind of tech products or anything discretionary. You're just going to try to survive in that case. And we know the VCs are pulling back as well. So the funding isn't going to be there and economic activity declines. Uh, and not and not only at the at the companies that don't make any money, but also the big companies. They're all going to get affected as well. So, um, you know, you look at some of the ones like Microsoft's holding up pretty well because they're they're an enterprise company. Um, and you, you look at you, you look at the U.S. in particular right now, U.S. U.S. enterprise is pretty strong. The economy is still pretty strong. Well, that's not going to continue. There's, they're going to be affected by that as well. And they sell at 29 PE for a company like this, 29 PE at peak sale, peak earnings, peak sales. That's, that's a problem too for the market. Um, So yeah, it's all going to come, come, come crashing down. Well, I want to ask you, I mean, you've mentioned that uh, Apple and Microsoft have held up relatively well to the, to the NASDAQ, but this too is, is kind of, reminiscent of the, the early days of the tech bust, isn't it? When, when no, absolutely. investors so kind of... Well, in 2000, the dot-coms dropped. March 10th, I'll never forget it. March, the day before, they were soaring, soaring. And, I mean, just ridiculous about, uh, uh, increases and in, in percentage increases. The dot-coms were, uh, there was some indication Yahoo had kind of broke in January. And then in March 10th, they collapsed. Uh, and then people rotated into bigger, safer, they thought, cap names. They thought that the internet would still be growing, just we're losing some of these crummy companies, which were driving a lot of their business. People didn't know that. Um, but the, so then they rotated into Intel and, and the Cisco's and all of those. Um, uh, they rotated into those. The S&P had held up all the way to September. And then Intel blew. And I knew that was coming. I couldn't believe that they were driving it to $75. It was on Labor, right around Labor Day, that, I think it was a Friday afternoon or something, that they 
they guided lower. And from that point, I mean, Intel just collapsed. And, and then they rotated into a different type. They said, well, that was a PC-related company. So that's a problem. Uh, but these, these internet companies like Cisco and Sun and EMC, those are the ones to be in. And every institution poured into them. I was writing about it at the time. The, every fund, di- didn't matter what it was, a fund. It was an international fund, low growth, high growth, dividend paying, you name it. They all were in the same names. Every one of them. They were all in Cisco, Sun, EMC, Nokia. Nokia, right? They were all in those four names. Every, every, it was just insane the kinds of things, the kinds of the, the funds that were supposed to have, you know, they have, they have their baseline, what they're supposed to be involved in. They weren't involved, they shouldn't have involved in it, but they all had to be in it. They all had to be in the same names just so they wouldn't be underperforming because the rest of the market was dropping. And the same thing's happening today. Everybody's in Apple and Microsoft, right? Everybody's in these stocks because, because, they're holding up, right? And 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 if so, you're outperforming. You know, they're certainly outperforming uh, Tiger Global right now, which is down fifty one percent this year. Which, uh, and they're certainly outperforming, you know, Kathy Wood and anybody else that was involved in that stuff. So they push, they continue to rotate. Cisco was hitting its highs in December when John Chambers said, "I've never been more bullish, never been more bullish in my life." He told he told analysts. I remember I was on that call. And three months later, I think it was, he was cutting 25% of his workforce because all of that dot-com stuff that was lifting, lift they were pouring all that money into the servers and, and networking equipment. They realized, well, it even got worse. Back then they were funding, Cisco and others were funding the customers trying to keep the dot-coms alive so they would yeah. keep spending. Um, and it all, it all fell apart. Uh, so they were rotated, 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 and they never gave up until the end. And that's always the case. See, I mentioned 1990. They were they had rotated into Compaq, uh, Intel, Microsoft, and Oracle, and then they didn't get killed. That last 50% collapse in those stocks was the bottom. And that's usually what happens. The big caps, the Apple will be the canary. You want a canary in the coal mine to tell you when the bull market is over. When Apple has dropped by another 67% or so, then you'll yeah. know it's over. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm always amazed. And, you know, I think my friend Peter Atwater had a great treat, tweet in this regard that the, the human watching human nature manifest in the markets is just fascinating. I mean, was it 2012 or 13? I think right after Steve Jobs died, Apple was trading five times cash flow. Nobody yep. wanted to own it. Right yep. now it trades 35 times cash flow or something. If you back out in stock based compensation and everybody wants to own it. And, and what just, products have come out since then? Yeah. They talk about an Apple car. Well, they've been talking about that for a decade. Right? Yeah, and talk about horrible margins, right? You want to ruin the well, Apple's yeah, margins. Let's go into the auto the business. Yeah, that's a good idea. Let's get into the auto business. Um, but no, I mean, other than, uh, you know, their their earbuds, what have they done? Yeah. He's been, he has been, Tim Cook has been, has been riding the wave of, of the iPhone, basically, and, if, you know, I, iPads, um, that, that Jobs and his people had all developed, and they've done nothing. Yeah, They've done was, nothing except buy back shares with the cash they generate, generate a lot of shares. But, you know, they were used to have no debt. Now they have a hundred something billion dollars of, you know, net. They still have net cash, but their the goal is to bring it down to zero and they're getting close. They only have like 70 billion net cash now, but they use all this. this they, they use the debt markets to uh, to borrow, to lever up their earnings. That's one of the things that they've done. 
Well, yeah, it's um, been the, the financialization of the business is really what Tim Cook's been successful. And, and I think people maybe don't appreciate just how much that has been a driver of the bull market. You know, in the past. You know Microsoft's another, another example of that one. It's a great one. Yeah. So when, uh, when the stock market crashed in 2008, uh, I got rid of all my puts because I don't like short. <laughs> I, I saw what happened in two, 1998, 99 and shorts who been around for 30 years got, you know, just they evaporated. They, it's just terrible. And they were really I, I, was, I was the hedge, head trader of a hedge fund in 98. We had a short only fund. And so, yeah, it was not, it was very difficult. It was and, a, yeah. and a lot of people went, up, went out of business. So yeah. I, I, I had learned long, long ago, even before that, that uh, you don't, I can't short personally. You know, yeah. some people could. I, I had the pleasure of meeting John Templeton after 2000. Um, and we were sharing ideas, thoughts uh, for, a cocktail party. It was one of the greatest moments of my life, you know, yeah. to John Templeton for me and yeah. as a value guy. And, 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 uh, uh, he shorted every, uh, he shorted every, uh, IPO for like over a year right. prior to the collapse. Yeah. And, and he was getting killed and he was getting, they were laughing at him and the newspapers and everything. And, uh, and, and I asked him, I said, well, how did you, how did you know that you're going to not get killed like everybody yeah. else was? He said, I just knew. Because yeah. he had yeah, been through no, and he had been through all of these others, uh, and he knew. Yeah, he, so, I think he told his broker short every IPO every, right at the exp- expiration of the lockup yep. period, and he every sold move. he sold like a hundred million dollars with his own money. And he was getting killed <laughs> yeah. at first, Wild. killed. Yeah, but well, I mean um, that that is a, a you know tradable lifetime right there, right, yeah. right. Wow. And so yeah, that was a that was a great moment for me to have a chance to talk and everything to him about because yeah. we both had lived through that war. Right, and, you know that, uh, and and survive. But uh, I forgot what I was saying. About, we're talking about Microsoft, I think. Yeah, Mike, oh, so Microsoft. Yes. So in two thousand and eight, as I did in two, October two thousand two, I bought a bunch of tech stocks, and I did very well with them. Now I should have yeah. held on to them longer, but in theory. Yeah. But in two thousand eight, did the same thing. Bought a bunch of tech stocks. I had no no had no shorts left. No, I mean no puts. Uh, and I bought Microsoft because I argued for the next four years. I argued that Microsoft was the number two cloud player. You don't understand this, people. It's a number two cloud player to Amazon. And they're going to be the, the provider of cloud services and software and everything else. They already do. All they're going to do is shift it from, from where they are currently, so, you know, client server to cloud. That's all they're going to do. And they'll be successful at it. They're the leader. They're going to be number two to Amazon. Oh, no, no, they're a dead PC company. They're awful. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> I sat on that for four years. Four years and it did almost nothing. Okay, nothing for four yeah. years from 2009 to 2012 or whatever it was, and then I kindly gave up. I think I think thought the economy was going to go down or something. I gave up. I sold it, and uh, and then the new CEO comes in and he starts levering up the share. He starts borrowing debt and the stock goes crazy. Right then yeah. it takes off. All of a sudden, and after it takes off, then it, everyone calls it the great cloud company. Only then. Four years, I argued in my newsletter. Oh, month, almost every month, I would be arguing how oh, this is the cloud. This is the great cloud leader, or one of the great cloud leaders, and you're calling it a dead PC company. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that's what, you know, that's what that's what happened here. Is the financialization? The new bomber got thrown out because he wasn't getting the stock price up, and that happened over and over and over again in the industry. If you your stock price wasn't going up, meaning you weren't levering, you weren't you weren't you weren't you know doing what you needed to do to get that stock price up then you were going to get replaced. And Bomber got replaced, brought in a new guy, and he did what was necessary, and the stock goes crazy. And that's just that case. That happened all over the place. 
Yeah, and even more than, you know, what rising interest rates do to, you know, valuations, it potentially puts an end to this financialization where companies literally, you know, it makes no sense to to borrow any longer. You know, if you have to pay six, seven, eight percent right. to borrow to buy back stocks at, at record valuation. So that yeah. financialization I mean, potentially comes to an end. It's distorted the whole economy, right? It distorts yeah. everything. And yeah. We can go through a long list of things that right. it has distorted. Yeah. Um, because money was free. Money's free. You end up with this craziness from, and that's the case in RCA, right? All the way in the 1920s. It's always the case. Yeah. Well, to, to come back to our um, 2000 analogy, uh, I want to ask you about what my friend um, Diego, do you need to yeah, answer that? Real. No. <laughs> no. Yeah, okay. Um, Sorry about that. Yeah, no, I try to tell everybody that normally calls me, don't call me. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Um, yeah, so Diego, uh, you know, I, I just spoke with him a couple weeks ago. He likes to call gold an anti-bubble. And so in the midst of all these bubbles, you know, we, we look for things that are ways to, to protect ourselves from the, the bursting of the bubble and potentially the monetary policy that results from the bursting of a bubble. In, in the peak of the dot-com mania 20 years ago, um, Investors seem to appreciate when they were starting to fall out of love with tech stocks, right? They started to rotate uh, in a longer term way into precious metals that turned into a massive bull market uh, for the next 10 years for for gold and silver. Do you think we're at a similar inflection point for precious metals today? Yeah, it's not exactly repeating where it rimes. Um, (laughs) It was interesting back then. I was protecting myself. So I had the puts. I had like 10% of my portfolio in puts, right? And I was funding most of that with um, against techs with S&P. I mean, not S&P, with uh, treasury bonds, six-month treasury bonds. And I was getting over 6%. And people yeah. call me idiotic because I was getting 6% on people would kill for that today <laughs> or, even, or, or more recent, uh, you know, a year ago. Um, so I was getting 6%. I was funding most of my put options with that. And that's a place where I could hide. But gold at the time was in a 20-year bear market. Yeah. It was not interesting to anyone. It was, in fact, absolute. <laughs> yeah. Okay. The Bank of England had gotten rid of, you know, all of their gold or half of their gold or whatever it was that uh, the prime minister did. Um, and, it, and, and, you know, it's interesting. In Gold began 2000 at $280 an ounce. By 2002, even though everything started to collapse, everything, right, started to collapse, it was still $280. Mm-hmm. It took, there was a long lag there between uh, the time that people recognized that, you know, it's over. <laughs> I need to be in something else, something that yeah. might be in a bull market now after being in a bear market for 20 years as, as gold was. And that's when I jumped in really in 2000. I started buying gold in the first ounce I ever bought was in 1998, I guess. I started buying that some gold because I knew how crazy the Fed was. Didn't know how crazy they'd get. Um, But then I didn't get involved in the equities, the gold equities until 2002. And then it took off from there. There's an important lesson to be learned there. And that is you have to be patient. Sometimes it's, sometimes you have to, you just have to wait for things. And there's a lot of people complaining because gold didn't break 2000 here recently and fell back that it's all over. It's a, you know, it's not working or anything like that. Now the difference between now and then is gold has not been in a, 
in a, in a bear market. Gold has been in a bull market. Uh, and I'd say the latest cyclical turn came in 2015 when we were at 1050. But as, as late as 2018, August 2018, we were at, we were at 1180. And we've gone from 1180, went up to two, over 2000. And, and people shouldn't be complaining that it pulled back a bit. I mean, that's what happens in, in all bull markets. There are pullbacks. So this time around, I didn't have the luxury of being in 6% treasuries. All I could get was zero, pretty much. I mean, one, you know, couple, quarter percent maybe, right? In treasury, that was it. And now, uh, so I was in gold because it was in a bull market. I've been in gold and, and it was in a bull market and it obviously done very well. And then you and I, both of us, also saw what we thought were just one of the greatest buying opportunities in history in 2020 in energy, where mm-hmm. they went to just ridiculously low levels like I had never seen before. Um, I'd follow the energy market on and off. I actually owned some energy 30 years earlier. So I knew a little bit about it. Uh, and and so there was an opportunity to get into, to be in both energy and gold, uh, which I didn't have. In 2000, I, was, I didn't have that. I could only be in treasuries. Now, most recently, some of these things have gone up a lot. Energy is a lot. I mean, it was the best performing uh, group last year uh, by far. And it's the best performing group this year. It's up another 45% on top of that. Yeah. And so I backed off a little bit to go back into treasuries because I can now get 2.7% for, for two years. So I have – now I can kind of be in uh, – it's not – 2.7% is not going to cover inflation at all, right. but it's only a portion of my portfolio and I can, I cannot have everything in energy and gold. Like right. I said. Uh, not exactly what you want to do when you're, you know, you don't need when you're near the social security age. Right. So, um, so I've been able to only just in the last month, put them into the 2.7%, some of my money, some of my cash, but uh, you know, this is a great place. The gold uh, area is in a bull market, and gold does very well when there are negative interest rates. And while well, we look at inflation CPI at eight and a half percent, we know that that's undervalued. It's higher than that's double digits, uh, and PPI is double digits. Uh, and you then you look at the two percent that you might get there, and well, you're looking at negative real rates. Uh, yeah. deeply negative. They're the deepest we've seen in 50 years, right? 1970s may have been the only time. Uh, 50s maybe. Uh, so we have these deeply negative, you, you know, negative real rates, and that's a primary driver of gold. Also, other things, budget deficits. Well, we have trillion, $2 trillion budget deficit. That's usually good for gold. Uh, a, a weak dollar is good for gold, and that's been a problem recently because the dollar has been strong relative to the euro and uh, the yen. Um, because they, it's hard to believe, but they're worse. Our central, their central banks are worse than ours. So the dollar at the moment is kind of, that's one of the reasons why gold has backed off here a bit is that the, the, uh, the computers, which uh, computers drive 75, 80% of all trading of everything, not just stocks, also gold. Um, they see a higher yield. And so they don't, and they don't, they don't look at it like I do eight and a half percent. It's negative rate. They say, right. Based upon our phony look in the future, uh, it's, yeah. it's, it's a positive real yield now. Well, no, it's not, but right. they're saying it is. And then the dollar has been strong. And so they have taken their positions down. So managed money, hedge funds mostly in the COT report, they were peaking out at, when we were high, hitting highs in 20 and 2021 at about 240,000 contracts. And now they're down to 80. 
in another two hours, I'm going to get another lower number. And so the U.S. institutions, uh, well, the, the hedge funds certainly are taking their positions way down. And that's a positive thing because they're always wrong. They yeah. buy the most. They have the highest contracts at the top. They have the lowest at the bottom. Same thing. We started to see some outflows out of GLD, the big ETF, even though we had huge inflows at the beginning of the year driving the gold market, they've started to come down. The other thing is like right now, this explains why we're soft now, but why we won't be. In uh, we had a, we had a big run and, and the miners were up 30% this year today to, and then uh, backed off. They're still up. Um, but so we had everything going kind of at once. We had the institutions that were up there. The, the GLD was, there was institutional money kind of into the GLD. Overseas buyers were buying. All of the ETFs from China and Europe particularly were growing. Um, central banks have been buying gold. All of that was driving it. But the two biggest drivers of gold, the two biggest consumers of gold are India and China. And they account for 50% of all consumption of gold per year. Right now, We've moved out of, in India, they have, there's a seasonality to gold. So the best period for gold is really from August to February. And then it drops off from March into June, June or July, where it usually bottoms and it takes off again. There's a reason for that. The Indians buy as stores of wealth. They use gold as stores of wealth. And they buy jewelry, but there's not much markup. So it's just real gold, real stores of wealth to them. And they've had a lot of problems with the currency over over history. So they buy, the farmers buy uh, at harvest time, but also they there's all kinds of buying by the dealers in advance of wedding season. And the, the also in, in advance of the uh, holiday season, where it's auspicious to buy gold. So a lot of the gold buying is done in the second half of the year and into the first part of the year in India. Same thing in China, where you have you have the same kind of seasonality. In this case, China, the consumers were buying a lot of gold, but then now they're shut down. You have 400 million people or so that are, that are locked into their, they can't even get food, never mind buying gold. So what was already a weak period for gold for consumption for both India and China is made even worse. So we've lost two of the big buyers temporarily, only for a couple of months here, more. And then the, the Indian dealers will start buying in advance of wedding season. The Chinese will be, hopefully they're not going to be all locked in for all this period of time. They'll be back buying as well in this strong seasonal period. And then we'll get the institutions that will come back once gold starts to go up again, because all they are momentum chasers. They yeah. just chase momentum. So if, and, so, uh, and, and then you'll see inflows into the GLD again. So everything's going to come back again into gold, which has been outperforming here. Uh, and his charts look, you know, fabulous. There's the cup and handle, of, you know, the, one of the greatest looking charts in, of all time of gold. Um, we're, you know, we're not far from breaking out to new highs. We hit new highs not that long yeah. ago. Uh, and we'll, we'll break out of here because, you know, I know I don't believe that the Fed is going to be able to <laughs> raise as much as raise rates as much as they can, as they said they would. And that's also one of the reasons why I bought those treasuries, because I don't think they'll ever get to 2.7% without blowing up the economy, which is so debt laden. And they'll, they will pivot, as Powell has done before and others before him. And it was interesting. We just saw on Wednesday. I mean, he couldn't even, they, he talked tough. He claimed he was Volcker, the second coming of Volcker. And what does he do? He appeases the stock market again by not doing, not, right. not doing 75 basis points and starting Q, QT late and, and slowly. Yeah. So, 
that's not what Paul Volcker would do. First of all, he wouldn't tell you. You'd have to watch the money supply getting crushed before you would before you would even know. And we wouldn't have talking heads all over the place back back in his day. But you're not Paul. I mean, the first time that they start to act tough, supposedly he backs off. And what happened? Well, bonds sell off, right? Bonds sell off. They're losing. They're losing confidence. So I think that. Um, that he's not going to be able to raise rates. We're still going to be in a, a negative real rate environment. Inflation will come down because of base effects, but not all the way because of all the problems that we have in the world. We can get through that from Russia to uh, to supply chains to uh, you know shipping issues uh, in China and elsewhere. There's also uh, lag effects for housing, where you know there's a 17 month lag between uh, between when 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 the Owners equivalent rent starts showing showing the real more real numbers than what they report in the CPI. The inflation rates aren't going to come down enough, and so we're going to have negative real rates. We're going to continue to have massive deficits. He probably will pivot again when that does. Gold, gold goes absolutely wild because they're losing confidence in the central bank, and that's starting to happen. What ha- what what happened at the end of this week was showing a loss of confidence in in, in the central banks. And my good friend Bill Fleckenstein, which who by the way said hello, um, he he he's been arguing all along that at some point the bond market will take you know will take away, um, will 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 install discipline. The, 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 yeah, take uh, away the printing press. Is take away that. the printing press, and and you know so we're likely going to be in turbulent times for some time, and with loss of confidence in the central banks. I don't know. You can have central any confidence with the ECB with the negative interest rates with what's going on with their inflation and the Bank of Japan printing, printing, printing. Even though they're starting to see inflation and the currency's falling, um, loss of confidence in central bankers worldwide, and that's all positive for gold, which is already in a bull market. And you know, it, who knows how high it'll go? I mean, the, when when gold when bull, when gold has had bull markets, as we saw in two thousand in that great decade. Um, you know, uh, gold went from 280 to uh, to 1900. You know, so that's a huge move. And I don't know what will go here. I, I don't like to make predictions, but I'll say a lot higher. Well, it, you know, maybe it's uh, an interesting way to think about it. I think Pierre Lassonde has made the point in the past that you know there are times when you see the Dow Jones Industrial Average and the gold one price one. reach parity, and right. and that might be something we're looking. You know. He also had one of the greatest quotes I've seen this year. I'm going to give it the best quote I've seen this year. Okay. Powell is the equivalent of a porcupine in a balloon factory. <laughs> there's no way. There's no way he's getting out of this. No yeah. way. Yeah. Well, I think that's what the markets are just starting to wrap their heads around is uh, Mr. Market is coming around to the idea that the Fed is trapped, can't support, can't come to the stock market's rescue and probably won't do enough to rein in inflation either. And so you're kind of having, a, you know, like Paul Tudor Jones said, it's the worst possible uh, market environment you could imagine for stocks right. and bonds. Right. And yet they won't give up. I mean, that's that's the thing. They'll rotate. They'll do anything. Um, you know, look at the fund flows. How can people be pouring money into Kathy Wood's fund after it's down 75 percent? Yet they are every month, January, February, March. I think yet two days ago, she got like our highest inflow of the year because they because the Fed, because they've done this. for It's unprecedented that they they kept the markets afloat for 13 years. And they always came in to intervene, always supported them. So you have people who, have, who fanatically believe that you, if, anytime you buy low, when they think now is a low time, right. you're going to win. 
you're going to win. And they're pouring money. Uh, I saw uh, saw numbers from, from also equi- hedge funds and equity funds. They were pouring money in too. And yeah. so you get these, you know, back in 2000, we had, back in 2000, we had, uh, of course, the markets collapsed. The NASDAQ collapsed 84%. Um, we had about 700 days of that bear market. 300 plus of those days were up days. Only 370 were down. And we had 15 rallies of between 10 and 50% within that time frame. And that's the same thing we're seeing today, except that they're even bigger believers of never losing. Right. And that's why we see this money. And this is what Mr. Market does. It destroys capital like this. It sucks you in with these rallies. So they all got buried, you know, on on, on Wednesday when Powell, you know, gave them some something to chew on, something positive to chew on. They were all all rushed into the market again only to get destroyed. Yeah. And so we're, this is a process that you see every time, except this one's a lot worse because of the amount of money printing that went on and the amount of interventions that occurred. Yeah, we haven't even started to see signs of capitulation. Right? No, so not at all. The opposite, the opposite. That's right. That's that's it's. You, yeah. you'll, you'll see you'll see all the classic signs of of that. You know, yeah. capitulation signs, and we're not seeing any of that. Just yeah. little ones like when the VIX goes up to forty, you might get a you might get a bear right. market rally, like right. we did in two, the two thousand time frame. Yeah, uh, coming back to precious metals, I want to ask you, uh, as much of an expert as you are on tech stocks, um, because you've been doing it, you know. Investing in the precious metals miners for so long now, too. You become two decades, yeah, two decades. Very, yeah, very astute at analyzing these companies. In fact, I, you know, you're one of the only analysts that I pay attention to in this space. So, I, I want to ask you, what do you look for specifically? Yeah, it's in funny mine, because I, I, did interview, I did another interview, an interview with the lead, he was the leading, he is still maybe the leading gold equity mutual fund manager. He says, You're the best analyst on Wall Street and, and gold, right? I listen to you all the time. Well, that's very flattering, right? But it's been so. I have been watching these things for this long. Been involved. I own them. So when you own them like that, and you own them in size, you get to you. You you know, for me, uh, that that gets me deeply involved. So, uh, yeah, I I think they're great. Um, They're they're extremely volatile. Uh, As you see, they'll go up one hundred percent in no time. Uh, In that bull market in in the two thousand. You mentioned the 2000 to 2000, well, really 2001 to 2011 time frame. The gold stocks went up 16, 1,600%, that's 17x, 17 times. So there was a lot of money to be made. And then in the 2013 to 15 collapse, so, you know, they fell 70%. So it, 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 it's, it's, if you want action, this is a great place to be. Yeah. And, and if you can get in on where they're, where they're cheap, then you're pretty certain that you're going to do really, really well in a big way. And really, that's where we are today, um, I think, because they've been doing fairly well, I think, because the gold price is up, but they're really undervalued. And part of that is they didn't get any attention. When everybody's chasing uh, cloud names and they're going up 100% a year and Apple and Microsoft and you name it, there's no intention. That's, the same thing happened in the bear market in 2000. There was no interest in gold and there was no interest here as long as the tech market and meme stocks and cryptos and everything else took attention away from gold. So it went up only because of the conditions are so great, I think, not because there's a lot of attention. And the miners have been depressed, I think mostly because they did fall at 70% in, uh, in, uh, by the 2015 bottom to uh, really insane levels. And everybody got burned at that point and, and said, uh, this group, I just can't invest in them. Yeah. Uh, and, and as a result of that, they have retained, while they've gone up, 
they are, you know, they're undervalued. So you have a number of these names. That I, some of the names I like are selling below net asset value, you know, yeah. in a big bubble here. Right. Um, and, you know, others that will do extremely well if the price of gold continues to go high and their margins are fantastic. The high in that in that um, the highest level they had gotten in, when gold had gone up um, so much was six hundred dollars, six hundred and forty dollars for the margin being the price of gold versus their costs, all in sustaining costs was six hundred and something dollars. It's higher today. It's higher today. In, uh, so the, the what they call the Huey to gold ratio, which is the gold stocks to gold ratio, went to average 0.46 in that 2000 uh, to 2011 bull market. It's 0.14 right now. We'd have to triple just to get to yet just to get to the same level they were in in that bull market. Um, so these companies are really they're earning lots of money. They're generating all kinds of cash. They all were all disciplined, sort of like the you know, everybody knows how disciplined the oil companies are. Well, it's the same thing with the gold companies. They're making all kinds of money. They're generating all this cash. And we've had dividend increase after dividend increase. They talk in every conference call how committed they are to shareholder value, whether it's via buybacks or dividend increases. Uh, they're all doing it. Uh, they learn their lessons. They're keeping their costs. They're not over expanding. And they're generating margins that we've never seen before. This last quarter, we were 1890 or something like that on average for price, 1870 something for price, and the costs were a little less than $1,100. It's, you know, that's almost $800 of margin. It was the biggest margins. They say, this is great. This is great. Anything higher, it's just the gravy on top of it. Yet the stocks don't reflect that. They don't yeah. reflect the cash flows. They don't, they're, they were selling at discounts to the rest of the market. There were significant discounts, like 50% on most cases, whether it's price to sales, uh, cash flows, earnings, everything, um, selling at deep discounts. So they're still very cheap, yet it's likely the gold market's going to take off here uh, and be in an extended gold market. And yeah. I don't know if you get to, I don't know if you get to P, uh, Pierre Lassonde's one to one ratio. I mean, uh, that that would be uh, pretty amazing. <laughs> the, it would the require a pretty pretty big bear market for the Dow and uh, yeah, pretty, pretty big uh, stocks. So, yeah, I don't know if you do that, but both. yeah, that's uh, you know because we're with thirty three thousand, thirty two thousand in the Dow. <laughs> we're, yeah, yeah. We're, you know, we're you, times you, right now. But specifically in in terms of gold, you mentioned the commitment of trader support and managed money. Right. I, I've been looking at the producers uh, side. And their short position relative yeah. to open interest is like at the lowest levels we've seen since 2018 and 2015, 16 before that. So they're not selling forward any product right now. They must no. be very confident that they're, we're, they're you know, and that, that's, a, that's a, that's a flip side of the, uh, you know, flip side of the, I, I watch manage money only because they've been so good at being wrong. Yeah. Better, <laughs> it's a better indicator. The hedge funds are a better indicator than even the producers, and the producers are a good one on the yeah. other side. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, if you know they, the commercials, as they call them, the produce part, producers are part of that. Yeah. Uh, you know, they put up big short positions when when gold gets too high. Yeah, and now Absolutely. they have these very low levels uh, because because the producers are part of the driver there. It's yeah, because they don't want to sell forward. They know the price is going higher. They know. I mean, it's a supply and demand issue. Um, we have we have loss of faith in the in in the in the U.S. dollar amongst not amongst the U.S. so much, but amongst central banks around the world. So you know, Russia dropped all virtually all the treasuries and went into uh, went into other currencies and gold. They were buying gold and they're buying it again um, because they kind of knew this. I guess maybe they knew that it would, it would end up this way. Um, 
but China's doing the same thing. They quietly, they, they, every time they go into, where well, they go into a period where they're silent and they, they claim they're not buying it publicly, they are. And I know they are. They're buying yeah. enormous amounts. Uh, I have good sources on this. The, the Bank of China is buying lots of gold. Why wouldn't they? Um, they own three trillion, uh, one point, uh, one point, uh, over a trillion dollars of U.S. Treasuries. They have a big exposure, um, yeah. and you know, potentially problematic for them if if anything goes, you know, if if, if the trends continue where we where we're we're becoming uh, more antagonistic antagonistic against each other. Yeah, and it's a lot of countries like that that are. That weren't gold buyers, even ones that are friendly to us, like Ireland, started buying a whole bunch of it. India has been a huge buyer. Turkey has been a huge buyer. So you have all of this, uh, at this, and this is like only to continue. Um, as I said, the dollar is only up because of its comparison in the, to the euro and, and Japan. Uh, yeah. So they're going to they're going to continue be um, uh, big, big buyers of gold. And so you have this demand. You have demand from all these countries. Um, encouraging buying. The Russians dropped their value-added tax on gold to get people to buy internally. Chinese have made it very uh, attractive to buy internally. Uh, and so all these countries, large parts of the population of the world, um, uh, all of whom are buying gold uh, to protect themselves, partly from their protection for their own currencies too. Uh, and that can that's going to continue. Yeah. So we have a lot of demand, but the supply side is is difficult. It's sort of like oil, where they've not been investing. Uh, they're being paid. They're being rewarded by shareholders. Shareholders love this for the dividends and the buybacks and everything. Just same thing in oil. Uh, and there's a disincentive around the world to produce, and it's getting more difficult. Most of the gold finds, the, there haven't been any elephants uh, finds lately for the last decade, pretty much. But where they do find, it's in very difficult locations to get it. The grades have gone over the last 15, 20 years from 10 uh, grams per ounce to one, a little over one gram per ounce. So it's getting more costly to, to, to build mines. And there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of, uh, you know, this expropriation by, uh, by countries in a lot of these places, either by the taxes or actual, actual taking, taking over, uh, places have become that were friendly to mining like Chile and Peru have, uh, have turned the other way now. Mexico as well. So the demand, the supply isn't growing. I mean, they're talking about actually declining here going forward, yet the demand is growing and that combination will drive gold prices higher. Yeah. Well, I want to uh, uh, change gears. Uh, I've taken up a ton of your time already, but uh, I want to ask you, you do, I mean, you clearly listen to a ton of conference calls. You're doing uh, an inordinate amount of, you know, research in individual companies and things, which is why I love to talk to you about this stuff. But what do you do, I guess, outside of uh, the, all this research in the markets to try and, you know, just to get a clear head at, at times? Is there anything that... And I need it because I work seven days a week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all year long, 365 days. You can talk to my wife about that. Yeah. That's a favorite subject of hers. Um, so what I do is, is, uh, I walk and I walk fast and I walk up hills. So it's strenuous. Mm -hmm. And most days, uh, I'll, uh, I have two homes. I have a home in Costa Rica, which has really steep hills and I'll spend, uh, I'll spend, uh, I'll walk five miles up hills, just up hills, steep hills to start. And then I'll walk the beach, um, which is nice. That's my reward to walk the beach, but it's six to eight miles every day, an hour and a half to two hours in the morning when it's cool. And then here in New Hampshire, I do the same thing. The hills aren't as steep, but 
they're they're good as well. And I, I, I so uh, I found that to be really useful for me. Uh, I I always I don't wear headphones. Um, I had a boss that I worked with in GTE who got run over by a car because he was listening to something and. Uh, he was on a sidewalk and got run over. I'll never do that. I'll never listen to. Pod- I'm sorry, Jen- I'm sorry, Jesse. I'm not going to listen to the podcast while I'm walking around. I, so that means I'm thinking the whole time, and um, and 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 I'm always coming up with thoughts while I'm walking. It's been shown that you that happens. The science has shown that, and um, and so oftentimes I come back to my office after that and I have to write things down or put type them in my my notes that I build up every month. Um, because I've, I've come up with these ideas that I, that I didn't have when I started walking. So I found it very beneficial. And then I just read a week or two ago that it'll add 15 years to your life if you walk fast like that. And, and if I needed any more validation, you know, I got like perfect scores from my doctor on all, every category in my uh, latest uh, physical. So I know it's working and I'll yeah. continue to do it as long as I can. Yeah, well, I, I had to look this up while you were talking. I, I think it's a Friedrich uh, Nietzsche quote: "All the truly great thoughts are conceived while walking." So, mm. uh, I mean, it's it's. Uh, I hadn't heard that. Yeah, it's a great. Even more. <laughs> great That'll practice. get me out today. Yeah, That'll but I was I was in Spain uh, interviewing Diego recently, and I walked a hundred miles in ten days. So I'm, I'm oh. coming around coming around to your your way of uh, thinking there in that go. regard. But um, uh, where can where can people follow your work, Fred? Where where can people subscribe? How can people subscribe to the newsletter? Yep. Okay. Well, uh, if you're interested, we can send uh, you all the details. If you send an email to the high tech strategist at yahoo.com and my trusty assistant, my wife will, will send everything you need to know. So it's uh, high is H I G H and strategist has a spell. So it's the high tech strategist at yahoo.com. I'm also on Twitter. Um, I, to- I, I tweet regularly, not as much as you. Uh, I really appreciate your, your tweets, by the way. I, this week I was uh, tied up with a newsletter and everything, and I said, well, I have to catch up on things. I'll just go to Jesse's and I'll find out all the important stuff. That's uh, very kind of you. You and one other, I did do that to kind of catch up real, really quick. It was easy to do. Well, I spend, um, I spend way too much time over there. But you, your Twitter feed is invaluable to me as well, I, and I recommend everybody go. Um, I think it's uh, – HTS, uh, is that right? HTS Hickey? Yeah, H-E- <laughs> something like that. Um, well, you'll find me. HTS, yeah. I think it's an F Hickey, I think. But okay, that's that, it. HTS so. F Hickey, that's right. I um, so. Yeah, I, I recommend everybody go follow. You put up a ton of, I mean, uh, you know, I, I don't pay attention to any tech analysts at all, but I'm always curious to know what you think, uh, especially during earnings season, about what you're reading. And, and I recommend everybody yeah, go follow. I appreciate you. that. Yeah. Fred, you've been a lone voice of reason throughout this whole speculative mania that we've No, I wasn't. You were too. You, I, I count you in a, a small <laughs> camp of people. Yeah. Well, I, I, for one, really appreciate what you do. And I, I thank you so much for taking the time to, to share your knowledge and wisdom with me today in this way. Always a pleasure to talk to someone with a like mind. I, then I know I'm not crazy. Well, hopefully, you know, the, uh, you know, this isn't just uh, confirmation bias here, that, but right. I, I do really enjoy talking with you. And uh, yeah, hopefully it won't be a couple of years before we do this again. Okay. That's, that sounds like a plan. I think you should come interview me in Costa Rica. You'll like it. Uh, you know what? That, that's a great idea. You're on. It's a deal. <laughs> All right.
And that does it for another episode of Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. As always, you can find notes and links related to this episode at thefelderreport.com. Thank you for listening, and until next time, buy low, sell high. Man looks in the abyss. There's nothing staring back at him. At that moment, man finds his character. And that is what keeps him out of the abyss.